Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. I'm joined on this episode by my colleague, Alison Evans, also from the Jane's Intelligence Unit, and by our colleague, Chad Peltier. Chad, who has been working with us for a number of years now, has worked in an interesting variety of roles at Jane's. But firstly, welcome. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. We're going to be talking about a really interesting topic that I'll come on to, but it would be great to get a sense of your career background and what you've been doing up to now, because you've held a number of different roles in Jane's, and it'd be great to get an idea and a sense of your, your background as an analyst. Absolutely. Thanks, Terry. I joined Jane's pretty quickly after finishing graduate school in international relations. That was about seven years ago now. I first started as an aerospace and defense solutions advisor here at Jane's, then moved into a consulting role where I've been for the past three and a half years. In consulting, I primarily specialize in projects that focused on emerging defense technologies. So analyzing things like hypersonic weapons, quantum technologies, and how they fit into countries' procurement programs. In the last four months or so, I've actually moved into a new role where I am focused on data analysis. Um, so I, I focus on the structured data and integrating that with our within our customer systems. I think you've touched on just briefly there some of the hot topics that a lot of our customers have been interested in, certainly over the last couple of years, you know, hypersonic weapons, development of new technology, connected data, you know, how we're bringing together date, different types of data, et cetera, to help solve intelligence problems. Those things are all really of interest, I think. But specifically on this episode, we want to talk about a briefing you gave to the China-US Economic Security Commission looking into China's military logistics and specifically looking at their expeditionary capabilities. It would be great to get some background on you uh, from you on, on how that came about. How did you come about to research that topic and talk us through the process? You know, how did you actually go about addressing that subject? Because it's not an easy one. I mean, it's very challenging. Uh, for anyone who's not familiar with China, it can be a very difficult and challenging area to, to research and look at and get information. So how did you go about doing it? How did you how did you go about sort of starting with it? Sure. So I'll talk a little bit first about the, the process for just getting the project in the first place. So the the Economic and Security Review Commission released an RFP late last year, and they were interested in proposals for a report that was roughly about 40 pages that looked into China's expeditionary capabilities with a particular focus on the logistics capabilities and network and supporting that made expeditionary capabilities possible. So this included really four primary uh, areas of interest for the commission. And I, I should note that this commission is part of the U.S. Congress. So this was a congressionally set up commission. And so this every year they produce an annual report that goes to Congress that informs policy and, and policy decisions. So this this intelligence product is designed to inform their annual report and the individual commissioners um, and their advice to Congress. So the four things that they were most interested in within this broader topic are the structural or organizational reforms in China that supported expeditionary capabilities, um, overseas bases. So I'm sure we can get into the weeds in just a few minutes, but um, they were interested in what potential locations might be good options for uh, Chinese military bases outside outside of China. The third topic is current and future military expeditionary capabilities. And then the fourth is any civilian and or dual use expeditionary capabilities that the PLA might use um, to further their military goals. As you mentioned, you and I have worked on, on the consulting side at Jane's for, for a number of years, but um, this is quite an unusual requirement you know, for us in terms of 
it actually being public um, the research that we right. produce and, and not only being public but you had to go and brief it to the commission uh, and talk through your, your your sort of key findings um, we'll maybe come on to that in a bit but um, yeah it'd be great to understand okay how you went about tackling those questions you know where did you start and how much of it relied upon sort of your existing knowledge of the topic versus how much did you need to go out and get information and how much did you use kind of supporting analysts on this? Yeah, great questions. So I, I should say, first of all, that we that I guess I, as the kind of leader on this project, was really lucky because we have a lot of really great subject matter experts at Jane's that I was able to turn to with particular areas of expertise in, you know, expeditionary uh, combat and concepts of operations on the one hand. Um, so we have former Marine Corps officers that I could turn to for the kind of nitty gritty details about, you know, how a Marine expeditionary unit works. What are the actual logistics behind how an MEU operates? Um, it's invaluable to have an SME to turn to for those kinds of questions. But of course, all, all of the data that we have, both internally um, that I was able to pull and, and access that and gain insights from our structured and unstructured data, uh, that was really key. But of course, I, I would say the primary task for this project was taking a mountain of unstructured open source intelligence from outside of chains and either structuring it or analyzing the unstructured data in a systematic way in order to answer the questions that the commission was interested in. So really, and this could just reflect my particular methodology, I suppose, for doing OSINT, but I, I was really interested in structuring as much data as possible, um, creating visualizations to help in my analysis and being as systematic as, as possible to to make sure that I, I didn't miss anything because there's, like you mentioned, there's so much content that could be analyzed that a, a structured process for scraping that information and analyzing it w was really key. That's something we run into a lot when we're also doing OSINT training courses, trying to focus on the planning and structuring of your output and also the collection side of things. Um, did you find in the process having to go back and revise your plan based on what information was or more likely wasn't available in the open source? Absolutely. I would say, for instance, if I could just start with the, one of the first tasks that I that I focused on, which was was analyzing potential bases, for instance. So I started with, you know, a review of, of literature. So this is English language analyses and news reports of potential basing sites. But that only gets you so far, especially because um, some of these some of these open source reports were of varying quality. Some some of these were on the ground, kind of almost a, a opinion pieces, really. It was really difficult to trust these headlines, uh, whether they were just kind of reactionary. Oh, China's going to build a military base in this particular city or, or in this port. There were a number of English language and, and non-Chinese but foreign language documents that we reviewed that seemed to suggest those kinds of things. But, you know, you have to take those kinds of things with a grain of salt and you have to look at the, at the data to, to actually make a judgment about the quality or, or the potential of uh, a base actually happening. So just overall, I think I had about close to 80 different potential sites worldwide. And to create that in the first place, did a, a large literature review, 
in both English and, and Chinese sources. And in, in particular, I found some really awesome sources from a Central Military Commission uh, chief of staff who talked about short-term, long-term, and medium-term goals for China's expeditionary forces. So it, it is kind of gold right there. But, but from there, he specifically talked about the Belt and Road Initiative and connecting investments in BRI countries and BRI locations with military and civil fusion partnerships. And so that specific example was then, of course, validated with other sources. But that was kind of the one of the core insights that drove a lot of our thinking in the project about Chinese overall strategy for their expeditionary bases. So things like protecting overseas workers, uh, Chinese nationals living and working abroad, um, the actual physical infrastructure of, BR, of BRI sites, supporting existing humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations, and of course, geostrategic considerations like uh, strategic lines of communication, and also kind of where it makes sense from just from a, a feasibility point of view. So whether there's local support for China in the area or if the country has signaled some kind of openness to other countries operating a foreign military base in, in their country. So those kinds of concepts, I wanted to put data to all of those concepts. And like I mentioned, I had, I had 70 different potential locations to analyze, but obviously that that's, that's number one, way, way too many to, to really think that are, are going to be realistic options for China. And like I mentioned before, the the quality of some of the reporting around those locations was was kind of doubtful at best. So uh, we had to, to narrow it down, and I think that that narrowing down process was was really key. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm happy to to get into that. Uh, yeah. If so you like. was that all about kind of refining the scope so that you could so that it was achievable within the time frame you had available and with you know the 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 scope of i guess of actually producing a, a 40 page report as you mentioned yeah yeah it would be good to unpack that a little bit you know how did you go about prioritizing where you were going to focus for your research efforts sure sure so th- th- that that is a really key point we were operating under a kind of tight time window for this project um while 40 pages doesn't necessarily seem like that long of an intelligence product. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was quite an estimative uh, sort of analysis, wasn't it, in terms of you were looking at where they were likely to establish bases from sort of 2030 onwards. Was yeah, that that's right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there, there were some short-term projections as well, but the commission was also very interested in, in longer-term forecasts too. So, you know, having to, to think probabilistically about all these things was, was really key. Um, and, Despite the fact that we have lots of SMEs who are, are great and have a lot of insight into these areas, it, it's a lot of information to synthesize. Um, so, so again, putting data to this and continually testing our, our assumptions about those long-range forecasts was really important. Um, and, and one of the key things that we used for the basis in particular was um, a data set we put together on replenishment port calls. So China has been deploying their various naval vessels to the Gulf of Aden on counter piracy missions. And throughout these counter piracy missions, we were able to collect, and, and this was aided, I, I have to give a shout out to the work from Andrew Erickson. Um, his his work on, on the Gulf of Aden missions was was really impactful for this project. Um, but, but yeah, so we, we put together a data set of all of these missions, kind of including their composition, like what ships were a part of this, the actual individual vessels, um, 
how long the mission was, how long they, they were deployed for, what ports they stopped at, whether those port visits were for replenishments of uh, supplies or if they were just a goodwill visit, which is something that the PLA frequently reports on official sources. So, yeah, we were able to take all that information and really get a surprisingly clear picture of what their concept of operations were like. And we're able to get some some really interesting insights about, you know, for instance, from the composition of the ship packages that were sent. We saw that there were three types of ships that they used. One constant was a Type 54A frigate that was on every single mission. Then there was a a second a replenishment ship. So this varied between just a, a few models of replenishment ships, due in part to the constraints that the PLA Navy has in terms of the replenishment ships they have access to and that were available for the missions. And then the third is frequently a combat ship that was much more capable than any counter-piracy mission would require. So these were destroyers, these were guided missile uh, d- destroyers, or sometimes a second frigate, or a, an amphibious landing ship, or an amphibious assault ship. So obviously, for a counter-piracy mission, these things are they are just unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But one of the key things that we can gather from that is that by using their current logistics base in Djibouti, as well as just having out-of-area experience, they're gaining operational experience both for the crew and the ships. Uh, and for the replenishment, they tested numerous kinds of concepts op- of operation for supporting these ships. And by structuring all that information and seeing it all together and knowing that we had a comprehensive look from the very beginning of these deployments to the present, we were able to get a really clear picture of what this looked like. It's, it's interesting how you then would kind of refined your scope and you looked at how to set it up as a framework for collecting that information and analyzing it um, and coming up, coming up with those sorts of key bits of analysis, like you said there, that they didn't need that level of resourcing for counter piracy missions, but it was useful for them in the broader context of what they're trying to achieve. And just coming back to something you mentioned earlier, which I think is really interesting in terms of how this topic is developing and how China is developing its its kind of overall strategy you mentioned that they were using a sort of combination of civilian and military in some cases, and, and that's a big part of their, their strategy and their, their plan. And that's kind of, in many ways, different to how you know other countries do these types of things or how they do military logistics, how they develop military capabilities. Um, you know, what was the sort of what were the kind of key the key points that you you came you came up with as a result of the research, and, and what were the sort of key findings really that you came up with at the end that demonstrated how China's sort of expeditionary logistics were developing or likely to develop in the future. Sure. So I'll touch on the dual use component of that. Yeah, first. sure. Sure. So, um, so like you mentioned, China has, has instituted a number of new um, laws that provide incentives and sometimes requirements for civilian organizations to provide the capability for uh, for dual use by the military. So some of these things are like cargo cargo ships, um, uh, c- container ships, refueling ships, um, future ships going forward that are being built are built to uh, military standards. For in terms of like, can they support a a tank on uh, on them or, or, or transport the these various kinds of military equipment? Um, 
some of them are designed to have particular refueling rigs that are modular in nature so they can be installed on uh, the, the deck of a ship and then be used for um, underway replenishment of naval vessels. So things like that, uh, kind of structural and organizational changes that are designed to support the PLA uh, and PLA Navy in particular. Um, so so those are, are really key. We, we took a look at some of their these civilian companies, like shipping companies, their fleets, where they have physical port facilities and the routes that these ships take. So, you know, where where in the world do are there shipping terminals? Do they have like um, p- petroleum and oil and, and lubricant? locations where they could um, use this as kind of like a logistics node to support naval operations abroad. Um, that, that was one of the key things that we looked at was that the PLAN was very interested in conducting underway replenishment in a it, where they could have an already deployed, either already deployed naval vessel or a civilian ship that could then rendezvous um with a task force or an expeditionary force in in open waters. So having those kind of pre-positioned logistics nodes were really key. And obviously China is is blending their military and civilian capabilities there. But overall, I, I think that the, the kind of key takeaway is that from the report is that China is not necessarily interested in at least in, in the immediate term or perhaps the, the middle term before 2030 is not necessarily interested in establishing a large network of um, kind of covert military bases. There, there was kind of a, a long running theory called the string of pearls theory that China was developing these secret or, or kind of covert facilities where they were stashing weapons or they, they might stash weapons or kind of quickly convert a kind of seemingly innocuous facility into something that was, was designed for offensive capabilities. So these kinds of locations worldwide, particularly throughout the Indian ocean region and, and the East coast of Africa could be kind of turned on a dime into these really threatening locations. Um, we really didn't see too much evidence of that, from the various data that we collected. Instead, while China does seek to exploit civilian and dual-use resources, uh, that, that's a little bit different than having a kind of covert uh, facility that houses offensive capabilities and platforms. Um, instead, we believe that, that China is looking to develop what we would call logistics. So th- that's a term, or that, that's a phrase that we... Um, that we saw in some of the literature uh, some, from some prior great work by the National Defense University here in the U.S. Um, and we, we thought it really applied in this case because China is, is really looking to have particular sites that in, in the event of open conflict that they could use for, for logistics and refueling, but really to, to primarily support their kind of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions. Um, it seemed that China is, is really interested in in kind of its its overall status as a, a world power, right? Not necessarily having um, offensive capabilities for a surprise attack against a, a peer or near peer. Um, so that that was that was a really important finding, and I think directed a lot of the conclusions that we had.
So in terms of the competition, like you said, it's not about China being a threat directly, but it's about actually being able to compete for influence in many ways, I guess, in terms of being able to deploy to do humanitarian assistance, disaster relief missions in locations that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to reach gives them a level of influence that they previously wouldn't have had. That's a really interesting angle on this. And, and debunking that kind of string of pearls theory as well is really interesting because I think they don't necessarily, well, the way you're describing it and from the research that you produced, I guess it's it almost seems the case that they don't need to be that covert. Yeah, that's right. And I think that some of their a lot of their aims are also driven by their economic interests primarily. Right. So status is really key, but really protecting that that BRI uh, and the BRI investments that they've made is are really important. Um, that, that showed up again and again and again across Chinese language sources that we used. Um, so, for instance, we, we took a look at a lot of of academics sources in particular and articles that were produced by Chinese think tanks. Um, so in Ch- Chinese military studies, and it, it was just an overwhelming majority of them explicitly mentioned uh, BRI interests for, for not only China's expedition, the, the need for expeditionary capabilities in the first place, but, and to, to specifically to defend them uh from any kind of threats or whether man-made or natural disasters, um, but also specifically to incorporate dual-use capabilities in the protection of those assets and infrastructure and individuals too. So th- those were those are really kind of interrelated and key. Um, and I sh- should also note that one of the key things that one of the key threats that we saw that China was worried about is uh, threats from non-state actors. Uh, around some of these locations. So if, you know, China has an investment in a, in a port in, in, in Pakistan, for instance, they might be concerned about threats from non-state groups that could use terrorist attacks or something like that to harm the physical infrastructure. So that was a really key consideration that they were, that were, they were worried about. And I, I think that that comes from their concern about, about the growing recognition of the situation in uh, w- with the Uyghurs in in Western China, as various non-state groups learn more about the uh, abuses happening to the to the Uyghur population, the Chinese and the PLA are in particular are concerned about a, a backlash and violence from non-state groups. Yeah, and that reminds me of. I mean, it was almost one of the first things I looked at when I first joined Jane's was some um, online propaganda that had been produced by. I think it was the East Turkestan Islamic movement at the time, which was, uh, but it was re- in relation to an attack that had occurred in Pakistan on Chinese workers for mm. exactly that reason you mentioned. So, yeah, that's always going to be, I think, an important part of their thinking around defending those interests, uh, those economic interests. Um, you mentioned some of the different sources you use then. You touched upon using Chinese language sources, think tanks, etc. How difficult was it to verify some of the information you were using? Yeah, was that a big challenge or was that relatively straightforward? Talk about a little bit about how you how you went about it, perhaps. So Chinese language sources were really key for this project. Unfortunately, I do not speak Mandarin. Um, so that was obviously a pretty big challenge. Um, so frequently I had to use, you know, various translation tools to get a sense for the documents. And then I had to then reach back to other SMEs in Jane's who do speak Mandarin and can can verify, oh, you know, this this translation is incorrect. You know, this interpretation you have of this document is not quite right. So uh, that that was a, uh, as a starting point was 
<laughs> was obviously a pretty big challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we did. I did find some some workarounds that seemed to help though for searching in in foreign languages, especially when you don't speak the language. Is uh, kind of the strategy that that I that I eventually got to was if I have a Chinese language document and um, I can isolate particular characters in that document and uh, until I know that they're what I'm actually trying to find. And I often found that I would get better search results across the various uh, searching platforms that I was using. If I searched using the Chinese characters uh, trans, you know, in the, in the original language of whatever I was trying to find, you know, whether that was a particular um organization within the PLA that like the the joint logistics uh, support force if I was trying to find like a, a JLSF um, unit or something like that finding the actual Chinese characters in a PDF and then searching based on those produced far better results than just typing in English the same thing um, so I, I would suggest if there are any analysts listening who are are challenged <laughs> to do any kind of open source research in a language that they're not familiar with, um, you know, maybe maybe that's an avenue that do. That's a really good point because it's you know what that is one of the questions that over the last ten years has come up more often probably than any other on our ocean training courses. People ask, okay, how do I how do I research content in languages I can't speak or you know how do I find um keywords you know like you like you mentioned there essentially keywords in those languages to be able to um do some of that searching identify content and then maybe turn to a linguist who can answer it for you you know my, my first answer is always well hire hire some analysts hire some colleagues who speak those languages um right. <laughs> that's number one yeah <laughs> if you can do that then by far and away that's going to make life easier um second exactly the method you mentioned i mean i think that's you know something that um hopefully people can try and use to help them identify content, even if they're not able to immediately understand what it is. Alison, you've got more experience in this area, though. It'd be good to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm a bit biased being a linguist and a regional specialist myself. So I think speaking the language, um, spending time in the country, um, it gives you that of the culture and the history that's really important for contextual knowledge um, and yes obviously we've got lots of tools at our disposal these days that we can use um, to find results in the native language even if we're not quite sure what that is but I think in order to get the nuances you said some of the other Jane's SMEs was would sort of tell you, okay, your interpretation of um, the tone of this document isn't quite right. I think it's always important to have people who know the country, who know the language on your team um, to help with this kind of thing. Um, and that collaboration is also important, especially for countries like China, or obviously I've worked covering North Korea, for example, where um, domestic sources will only give you part of the picture or a very specific angle on the picture that you're trying to get. So um, it's great, obviously, that you used Chinese language sources um, and worked with colleagues who have that background, that expertise. Even then, um, were there other languages? You mentioned foreign language sources, perhaps um, in Japanese or from some other Asian countries that um, are also writing about China's um, operations and its military development that were particularly useful for you in this project um, in a way that English language sources weren't? Um, so, so I would say that other non-Mandarin non and non-English sources that we used were primarily um, 
related to investments in Africa, actually. So these were um, kind of business focused articles and news reports that we would read that would talk about the terms of, of a particular deal in terms of investment in a particular port. Um, and that, that was really key for us in understanding China's interest and strategy in BRI investments and whether these particular sites, uh, you know, could have the physical infrastructure or, or potential for, for an actual base or logistics node. So I, I would say that was primarily the focus that we used or the reason why we would use non-English and non-Chinese language sources. Um, so th- those were, those were very valuable for sure. Yeah, actually, that um, reminds me of something else I wanted to come back to, which was those metrics. So obviously, you mentioned the BRI and Chinese um, business interests. But I was wondering if you could be a bit more specific about the metrics that you use to reduce the initial 70, 80 potential sites down to a manageable number for the the sort of database that you were creating um, that where you were collecting much more information on all of the potential sites for 2030. Yeah, so essentially what I had, I started again with that list of maybe 70 or 80 sites. Um, I had about six different areas that I wanted to operationalize and to put actual data to. And I was left with with what started as just a list and turned it into a uh, a, a real data set of um, with with variables for each of these concepts that I was trying to put data to. So for instance, uh, with the BRI was able to get investment data on how much money was was spent on BRI tagged projects inside the country, um, debt to China. So there are some sources for uh, the, the ratio of, of debt specific to China that we were able to pull. Um, I, I already talked about the replenishment port calls and, and visits by the various task forces, by the PLA Navy, uh, government support for Chinese presence. That where for for those we had to make a um, essentially created a, an ordinal variable where we kind of tracked the level of support based on on various sources and, and news releases. But one of the things that went into that too was also um, things like arms sales. So um, whether whether the particular country is is buying Chinese arms. So obviously we, we have plenty of data on international uh, defense exports. So we were able to leverage a lot of that and then data on foreign military bases. So using our uh, Jane's data on, on bases and from that was able to have a sense for, okay, this, this particular country is willing to house a, a foreign uh, military base inside its, its borders. And then I just had a also a tag for whether or not the particular site was mentioned in open source reporting as a potential uh, military facility as well. So I, I, I think that that's six different variables that we were able to capture. And from there, it was it was actually a pretty clear idea of um, it, it reduced the data set from from 70 or 80 to about 20 different sites that we were able to look at in more detail. And from those 20 sites. Um, I worked with our satellite imagery analyst, um, Sean O'Connor, who was able to pull satellite imagery data from our imagery providers and actually do actually do assessments of the physical infrastructure that supports these locations. For instance, do they have enough 
existing docks or runways to support um, transport aircraft or, tra- or naval vessels uh, beyond what is needed just for either commercial operations or for the, the, that particular country's naval vessels? Um, are there support facilities like hangars, um, POL um, uh, infrastructure, and is there surrounding is the physical area um, conducive to further development in the future? Because again, we're looking for not just the next 10 years, but, but even beyond. So after 2030, is there enough existing land even for further development of, of, of port facilities or, or runways for these kinds of uh, aircraft and ships? And from there, we were able to construct a, so using that physical data, based on the imagery analysis, we were then able to pull in our specifications data. So the length and width and displacement and um, re- refueling points and um, runway and takeoff information, the runway links that were needed for aircraft, pull in all the specification data to say, all right, here's all of the PLA, Air Force and Naval, um, Naval platforms that would be able to to actually use these facilities so even if they're not you know a chinese military base could they be used even if they were just a civilians logistics node um so combining those all those data sources was was really really valuable for this project and did you come across any any elements where you sort of um you kind of looked at it and you thought okay this seems interesting but actually the information just isn't reliable here or actually you came across even elements of maybe even disinformation. I don't know if there was any or not, but anyway, you thought they're talking about an area or a location, but actually there's no evidence that there will be any sort of activity there or bases built or anything like that. Yeah, I would say that some of the locations in Africa, I think would fall into that category. Um, so th- there were a locations on both the eastern and western coasts that I think a lot of maybe local media were um, skeptical of of Chinese intentions. However, I think in a lot of those scenarios, the level of investment is kind of is low at this point, and the, the physical infrastructure might be more limited. And so it was clear that these locations weren't going to imminently become a, an actual Chinese military base that at the at the most they might serve as just a, a stopover point for civilian refueling and an innocuous um, humanitarian mission or something like that. So if they were to become something more than, you know, up, up to the level of what we're seeing in Djibouti, for instance, it would have to be after 2030. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, and in the report itself, I mean, the, so the different types of sources and information you talked about, the different analysis you produced, bringing together satellite imagery analysis that Sean produced and other types of data and information is really impressive, I think, in terms of how you were able to draw all of that, uh, all of those different strands together um, to reach the conclusions that you did. Um, what, what were the biggest biggest challenges you found in terms of just the process you were going through? Well, I, I think, like you mentioned, there were a lot of moving pieces here. Um, I, I would say that this was the, the the time constraints and the actual space constraints too were, were challenging. The, the, these were 
um, each one of these sections, the, the organizational changes, the bases, the military capabilities and the dual use capabilities themselves could be a, an individual report mm. of, of even more length. So getting all of this information together in a digestible kind of ready to use format for the commission was itself a really big challenge. Um, working across languages and across sources, uh, bringing together all this data, it, it was definitely a challenge as well as just working across in, in a large, larger team, right? Of, of SMEs. So all of those, those are, those are common problems, I think, for, for OSINT projects, but, um, nevertheless, they definitely apply to your. Interesting. And I've got to ask, in terms of actually going and briefing the commission, what was that like? Um, it must have been nerve wracking, I guess, uh, even though, you know, you, you know, the subject inside out, you know, the report. You know, uh, what else did you have to do to sort of prepare for the briefing? Yeah, that, that, that was a really great experience. Um, I was happy to, to get a chance to do that. Um, first, too, that I, I was on a panel with two other experts who had also produced um, had produced written testimony, though their testimony was not necessarily based on a, a, a report um, in the same way that ours was. So it was really excellent to hear the perspectives, this, the how the perspectives of these other two analysts and the groups that they represent um, were, were different and, and similar to the work that we had done. So I found that, you know, we used a lot of the same sources, for instance, uh, Chinese language sources, um, which which is in a lot of ways reassuring. Um, but just the particular analytical focuses that we that we had uh, were were interesting to, to hear and to kind of compare and contrast in terms of of actually delivering the the report to the commission. Um, yeah, I, I think preparation for that was was actually pretty straightforward, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we had spent a long time, had this rush effort to get this report finished in time delivery of the report. Um, so like you said, we kind of, kind of had it, had it locked down. Um, and so it was, it was really a matter of, of distilling the, all of the information into kind of really key takeaway points. Um, because in, in my in my opinion, at least for this presentation, it wasn't necessarily to the the point wasn't necessarily to to get into all of the weeds unless asked by the commission. The point was to make sure that we had really key takeaway points so that that they that were actionable, right? So it was really just where before it was all about synthesizing and organizing information to produce a report. The presentation of the report was about distilling that all that information that we had had made into uh, a couple of key takeaways. That's a really great point, um, because I think, again, this is something that's quite difficult, especially when you're under such time pressure, is to deliver something concise and clear, especially orally. Um, often, if you ask someone to brief for one minute instead of five or, you know, 20 minutes instead of 45, that's more difficult. Um, so is that something you specifically carved out time for in the days ahead of the briefing? Or was it something that you sort of worked with along the way as you were coming up with the recommendations? You thought, OK, these are the key elements that I'm going to make sure I include if I only have a few minutes time um, to brief on the day. So the, the commission itself for the report, they were very clear that there had to be um, that those top line takeaways at the very beginning of the document 
and also recommendations for Congress at the end of the document. So in some sense, the commission just in the report process kind of forced us to think about distilling the information down to a couple of kind of key talking points. So that was very helpful. But but yeah, I, I do think that after producing the report itself, that was actually when I wrote those the beginning and ending sections, those key takeaway points. So it was kind of combined into prep for the presentation. But but yeah, so it was kind of separate processes, like write the write the rest of the report in the first time and then uh, write the key takeaways for both the report itself and for the presentation at the end. Make it sound easy, Chad. <laughs> All those years yeah, of experience. It's really not- definitely coming into play yeah no it's not it's, it's not i don't think and um it's, it's it's a tough skill actually i think like you know listen you, you mentioned it that that is one of those things i think again that analysts um can can struggle with quite often and you know that we get asked a lot about on the, our courses and um i think that it's it, it's sometimes actually harder to do when you know a lot about a subject rather than if you're if you're approaching it as a generalist and you know you, you're very deliberately trying to just deliver a briefing but in this case you know obviously you've got um, quite a bit of expertise on this area anyway, Chad, and, and, you know, you've obviously built up a huge amount by doing the research, but then you've got those different outputs. You've got the report itself, and then you've got that, that briefing. And, and am I, am I right in thinking that the briefing is still available online? You can still watch the video? Yes. The report and the, for anyone and the who's interested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So going back to the previous work that you've done and, you know, how this went so well, um, you and I had a conversation earlier this year, Chad, about um, doing a bit of work on space and counter space. So I'm wondering if looking at those kind of related topics specifically, obviously, to do with China helped you in this case as you were working out, okay, not only where to go for sources, but also how to structure your time and plan the whole process of gathering information, verification, and then pulling together the report and recommendations. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, So, yeah, I would say that my my particular analytic focus is on data number one and then on the emerging, the actual emerging technologies. Um, and so obviously China's a huge, huge player in emerging technologies. So, um, but like I mentioned, I'm not necessarily a China analyst. So having, having other people who are was, was, was really important for this. I, I would say that in terms of structuring my time for the project, I really wanted to make sure that, that people were spending their time on things that they were right so um i i tried to focus as much on you know data collection and analysis and on the technology side of things um and let the the china x the chinese china's uh chinese um analysts focus on those kinds of things and one one thing that i, I thought was really valuable and this kind of comes back to something that you mentioned about the value of of a language or regional specialty is that if you have that kind of contextual knowledge about about the the language and the culture then it really can help you organize the overall project because you know you already have a a, a mental layout of what sources you might turn to in the language what um what the organizational uh, structure is like and so you can structure the whole rest of your project if you have that kind of kind of a regional focus. Um, so, so again, I, I think that that it's possible that even regional regional specialists are maybe even underappreciated because of how much value they can bring onto 
onto uh, projects like this um, and then having specific subject matter experts kind of fill in the gaps for whatever thing that they specialize in. Yeah, I definitely think, again, perhaps I'm biased. I definitely <laughs> think it helps to um, have that framework for how this, for example, China's expeditionary capabilities fits into the broader perspective. You know, you mentioned in the report um, China's diplomatic efforts. And I do think having the regional exp expertise allows you to um, understand where whatever you happen to be looking at at that point in time fits into the broader picture um, from multiple different disciplines. Right. Yeah, I, I do think that there's there can be a tendency to view things just through a military analysis lens. But if you kind of zoom out and look at it through like a Chinese grand strategic point of view, um, having that kind of cultural understanding really helps with that kind of thing, because, you know, you're not a country is not thinking of military things in isolation, or at least they, you know, they should they're making their strategy. And so incorporating analysis of, of the diplomatic situation and economic situation was was really key. And I think that touches on another important point that you alluded to, which is where when you're tasking other analysts or you're just collaborating with other analysts, an important point is trying to organize that and make sure that you're all working on the same thing um, and there's not too much duplication of effort um, and that you're creating a consistent output. That's a whole nother skill within you know, the delivery of OSINT that we haven't talked too much about today. Yeah, I, I think that I think that that's right. Is um, how much of of producing OSINT is really uh, kind of project management to mm -hmm. to just ensure that that all the different analysts that are working on a project are are uh, on deadlines that make sense, so that the kind of pieces can be stitched together, and that you have processes in place for kind of verifying conclusions and challenging conclusions in 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 within the team. Um, those kinds of things are, are really important and I think kind of easy to overlook. I definitely think it's really important. Um, and it, 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 you, you hit on the right term there, Chad, in terms of project management, because um, when you are bringing together those multiple inputs, you've got that intersection of regional expertise, thematic expertise, you know, with yourself focused on emerging technologies. Um, you had, you know, a good friend of ours, Tate Nurkin, uh, contributing as well, who's obviously another expert right. in emerging technologies in that type of area. Plus the specialist skills, you know, Sean O'Connor and others work, you know, with satellite imagery analysis. Um, all of those things. I mean, it's, you know, we talk a lot in intelligence circles about fusion and creating these fusion teams and bringing together these kinds of expertise on a whether on a project basis or on a regular kind of monitoring basis. But this is a great demonstration of that. This is a great demonstration of where all those things come together to produce an output which actually provides some really interesting conclusions and findings in terms of, you know, things that otherwise people might have missed or not seen or actually which might run counter to what other people think in terms of you know, what China's strategy is and where they're going to be focused, uh, focusing their efforts. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a particular fan of, of people who work within uh, uh, intelligence teams, generally open source intelligence teams like this, or when, they're, when you're working collaborative efforts, learning some basic project management skills. And, you know, I, I, I try to couch it in different ways because I know, and I'm not talking about you here, Alison, but I know some, some members of my team start falling asleep as soon as I mention project management. But, you know, um, <laughs> uh, they know who they are. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's important because you've got to be able to bring together all of those different talents in a way to be able to produce something like this. You know, this isn't the kind of output that somebody can necessarily produce on their own. And so I think I think that's definitely one of those challenges that needs to be addressed and overcome in terms of the planning uh, of how to approach this. So 
Um, was that something that, you know, you were conscious of right at the outset? You needed all those people involved and, and the right th- those skills involved? Or was it just as you were going through, you realized, oh, actually, now we need somebody to we need to draft somebody in who can help out with uh, the imagery analysis or, you know, actually we come up on a, with a problem here. We need somebody to come in and help with this or, you know, how much of that was, was set at the outset versus how much did you you sort of build it in as you went along? Yeah, so I think a, a lot of the, the analyst support that we had was from the very beginning because we had to put together our proposal for the project and list what analysts that were going to be a part of the project. So I did, did a lot of that kind of thinking through at the beginning of, you know, who on, who within Jane's and outside of Jane's, like you mentioned, Tate, um, would, would be a good fit for this project. But even saying that there were cases where I had to reach out to specific analysts as unexpected things popped up. I mentioned earlier, for instance, that uh, understanding U.S. Marine expeditionary units was kind of a key component to understand how the the U.S. concept of operations for amphibious assaults compared with with whatever is happening with China's growing uh, PLAN Marine Corps. Um, so understanding the different capabilities and potential concepts of operation for amphibious uh, operations was not something that I necessarily thought that I would need to dive into the details as much as I did. But thankfully, you know, we have an SME in Nelson Fisk, who is a former Marine Corps officer who I could turn to with, who specializes in not just the actual physical land equipment that would be involved in such a thing, but also has a firsthand experience in actually conducting these kinds of operations. So, so yeah, we definitely had to kind of be, I guess, flexible in terms of, understanding when we needed to reach out and bring someone into the team it's interesting even even for people who aren't necessarily looking into this topic um it's just really informative in in terms of getting a general understanding of uh, and as you said in terms of drawing upon those broader themes around you know what is china doing with the belt and road initiative and what are the sort of more strategic elements that come into play, not just the very um, the operational aspects of, OK, where are they focused and what are the bases physically, um, how they set up, et cetera, what, what is available at those bases and locations, all of those sorts of details, which are all really important. But the the, the, the other things that, that come into it as well that do help you understand it in its context. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even, you know, uh, I've not particularly focused on China much in terms of the research that I do, but reading through it, I found actually there's, there's a lot that I can take away from it and, re- and learn and help me understand what's going on in the world more broadly. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a great piece of work. And, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, that's right. And I think the, uh, the, 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 the briefing went well and, you know, um, uh, where do you see the topic going next in terms of, you know, is this, is this something that you think actually analysts should remain focused on in terms of how China's capabilities develop or do you think it's something that, is um is almost set that they've, they've set their plans and they're going to sort of more or less execute those plans now I, I guess a lot has changed with coronavirus this year i, I don't know i mean that may have sure. thrown off some of those plans or pushed things back but yeah it'd be good to get your thoughts on on how much might change so yeah even setting aside any potential impact uh and ongoing impact from from covid um it's a very dynamic situation and so i think that this is something that kind of really needs to be kind of constantly monitored in particular because the PLA Navy and PLA Air Force are introducing new platforms all the time. And some of these platforms are really key for China's expeditionary capabilities. So for instance, the PLA Air Force is beginning to introduce Y-20 transport aircraft in sufficient numbers and transport necessary um, 
equipment and personnel to to conduct these operations and rapidly respond um, to crises as as they erupt. So, you know, one of the things that that we that we saw in our research was that PLA planners, tank journals, uh, would often talk and study U.S. operations for expeditionary uh, deployments. And so, you know, what kinds of de- how how the U.S. military, um, you know, transported supplies to Iraq, for instance, and the end to end logistics capabilities and network that they used. And so I, I think we have to be kind of constantly monitoring how those these things are changing now that new capabilities and new platforms are being introduced. So is is China beginning to have type 55 destroyers? you know, regularly going on, on these Gulf of Aden missions. Um, are, are we starting to see physical infrastructure being in particular ports that might suggest, you know, Hey, this actually is, is moving beyond just a kind of use of a civilian port and it might be something more dedicated to a, a military force. It's a really dynamic situation. So even absent any kind of considerations from COVID, this is, this is something that has to be studied ongoing. What's really interesting there is that you, t- you touched on also not just the importance of keeping an eye on this topic from the perspective of anyone who's interested in following what China's doing, but also anybody who's interested in following how emerging technologies are developing and how things like um, the military applications of those technologies are changing and how that what it means for logistics, because right. China's at the forefront of a lot of this, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that's a really another great point, because um all of the researches in unmanned systems that can automate some of these, some of these uh, kind of endpoint delivery, for instance. So, you know, you might have, you might have a, a ship and have uh, automated unloaders for, to actually get it from the endpoint to the actual uh, deployment area or just unmanned combat systems too. So there's been a lot of Chinese research into uh, unmanned amphibious vehicles, for instance, um, and how these might be used in amphibious operations. So a- absolutely, you know, China, China is, is kind of at, at the forefront of a lot of these unmanned applications for, for military operations. So how these play into logistics is, is really interesting. That's fantastic. That was, that was pretty much a comprehensive, I think, discussion covering a lot of the things that you raised in the report and a lot of other things besides. And I think that's given us a really good insight into what goes into actually a report like that you know because i think very often people see a finished product and then you know they may not understand a lot of uh, what's been done behind the scenes to actually get it to that stage so you know that's been really really interesting chad and it's been fascinating talking to you about it um was there any other things you wanted to sort of highlight or touch upon or have we covered everything <laughs> one thing that i'll mention is that there were a couple of other OSINT sources that given the time i would love to have investigated and so just you know, maybe some ideas for kind of future work. Um, one thing might be looking at RF emissions. So this is a growing area of, of open source intelligence is understanding radio frequency uh, emissions. And so that might give us kind of clues about Chinese troop movements and ship movements, even when kind of typical open source like AIS tracking windows go dark still being able to keep track of where these platforms are um, and, you know, why might they, why might we be hearing uh, some transmissions from a particular location? So as, as those sources become available, incorporating those, um, there are, there's a lot of social media intelligence that we just didn't get a chance to, to 
dive into that I think could be interesting. So Chinese social media use for deployed uh, PLA members might be something to look into. Again, didn't have too much time to really dig into to that whole world of of sources. Um, there's a lot more that we could have done with civilian ship tracking data too. So I, I mentioned that we looked at at civilian ships and routes and port facilities, but there's a wealth of open source information that Chinese shipping organizations put about their about their ships and about their routes and things online that could be collected and structured into a, a really interesting a really interesting product and then i think I, I would love to dive deeper into uh well maybe not me personally but a chinese language specialist to dive into the, some of the academic mm-hmm. literature um because th- there there's there was a lot and even though we incorporated a lot of it and it was it was incredibly valuable i still feel like we only scratched the surface of chinese academic writing You've just touched on a whole range of, of information that's out there and available for people to use. And so, again, I think that speaks to the utility of open source information, um, but then also the challenge of trying to get on top of everything and, and do it within the time frame you might have available. Um, and and the, the importance of being selective, I guess, and making sure you're able to prioritize information. But thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks, Alison, as well, for joining. Uh, Hopefully people have enjoyed this episode. Do give us your feedback and let us know what you think. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy future episodes of the World of Intelligence podcast. 